I'm Steph. And I'm Jeff. Each week, we review a film that's streaming on Netflix or Amazon Prime. As writers, we'll deep dive into the hook, plot, characters, and movie to tell you if it's a good story. Listen at your own risk. This review contains spoilers. Now sit back. Relax. And and enjoy Stream On. Today on Stream On, we'll be reviewing The Fair, streaming on both Amazon Prime and Tubi. Cab driver Harris is on a lonely road in the middle of nowhere. He is looking for a passenger, Penny. He picks her up, and then picks her up again, and then keeps picking her up. As they loop through the same series of events, Harris slowly comes to realize the truth. And no, it is not Groundhog's Day. The Fair was directed by D.C. Hamilton, and it's written by Brenna Kelly. It stars Gino Anthony Pesci as Harris, the cab driver, Brenna Kelly, who's the writer, but she also stars in this film, as Penny, his fare, and Jason Stewart as the voice of the dispatcher. So, Steph, you pick this film. Why? So I picked this one because it was recommended to me by an old army bunny of mine. And he, like me, is an aspiring writer and also a sci-fi fan. And so I generally tend to agree with his recommendations on films, especially ones that uh, have good character development. And so he said that he thought I would enjoy this one and so figured I would go with his recommendation and check it out. So let's dive into the movie. Steph, what did you notice about this film? So the first theme I'd like to point out is what makes a good plot twist? This movie, I think, does a pretty good job with its plot twist. There are some stories where the plot twist is very obvious and predictable, Like a film, Midnight Sky would be an example of that, that we both watched recently. It was a very obvious early on what this plot twist was going to be. But with this movie, I found that it wasn't as obvious. So what the movie did well is they threw a bunch of misleading clues early on that lead you down a different trail than what the plot twist is going to be. So They use tropes from alien films to take you down that road. So you've got commentary on the radio about alien stuff. You've got the dispatcher mentioning maybe you were abducted by aliens. That's why things seem weird to you in this storm. You've got a, a strange electrical thunderstorm thing going on in the distance that doesn't look normal, and we often see storms associated with aliens you've got the radio going wonky multiple times which i've seen plenty of films with like alien abductions happening as the radio is going wonky so i thought it did a good job like letting you think that it was going to be aliens what do you think jeff did you did you get what they were doing like early on in the film did you guess what the plot twist was going to be almost immediately When we're introduced to Harris, he is listening to the radio. He listens to three 
distinct radio's channels. On one, there's a talk show about aliens breaking the timeline. On another, they're talking about Hades and Persephone. And on the third, they're talking about the needs of women. As soon as I heard the Hades and Persephone line, I'm like, okay, I think it's going to go in the non-obvious direction. That is, this is not going to be aliens. That's kind of reinforced by the use of a visual cue to let the viewer know when Harris is remembering previous timeline or previous loops. It goes from black and white when he is unaware of these loops he's caught in to color. If this was a straight alien abduction film or something about a broken timeline, there's really no reason to have that kind of visual cue. However, if you are creating a fantasy, a visual cue like that is more understandable. I do agree with you, but they clearly have some of the tropes of alien abductions, both film, books, and just general UFO abductee lore in this movie. It's just pretty early on I rejected that. I assumed that was too obvious. And the screenplay is too clever to just do the obvious. So you did you think... So you knew it wasn't aliens, but did you guess early on that it was going to be the river sticks, basically? Like, did you get that? My assumption that was that this movie was going to be like Jacob's Ladder or Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, in which we have a character who is on the verge of death and that this was going to be him living out some sort of life in those moments before death. It wasn't until later in the film that I was like, oh, this guy is the new Sharon. I think the thing that finally was a clue for me was about halfway through the film where Penny is telling him not to drink the water because every one of these loops pretty much ends with him taking a drink of water from a thermos. And I'm like, oh, water from the river Lethe. Clearly, this is Greek mythology. And so after that, it pretty much went the way I thought it was going to go. It was still a decent twist. I just rejected the alien red herring early on. And from there, once you do that, the clues are pretty obvious that this has more to do with the afterlife. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I liked it. I watched it twice. And so I went back through the second time to pick out all the little clues. I like doing that with plot twist movies, like looking for the breadcrumbs along the way. And so the I think the first one is the radio where they talk about Hades and Persephone. And then you've got the something falling out of the meter. We learn later that it's a coin. Uh, Destination Elman River is a clue because that's like Earth and the afterlife intersecting with one another. The heat smells like burning. That was also a clue uh, that it's not just normal heat, that it's the heat of going to Hades. He also, Harris, at one point, he says, you've reached the empty shell of a man that used to be called Harris. And he refers to the dispatcher as my liege, which is, uh, we thought it was funny at first, and that was just their banter, but 
it really is. The dispatcher is Hades or Satan or, you know, whichever version you want to use of that. Penny is into horticulture. That's what she does for a living. Um, and, you know, and we, if we know like the myth of Persephone, it has to deal with, it, it deals with the seasons, right? Um, when she goes to the underworld versus when she's above world. It's typically six months, but I've heard different versions of the legend, but that explains the seasons. Let's see some other things that I thought, like there was the vintage cab. This one I thought was interesting. So the cab looks like it's from way back in time, right? Like maybe something out of the 1950s, but then they're referencing modern singers like Miley Cyrus, Selena Gomez, Ariana Grande. So why such an old looking cab that they're mentioning modern singers? That was also a clue that something was, I mean, you could have just done that with like a time travel motif though. There's lots of little things along the way. The water one, I would say is what got me too, that I started thinking, okay, there's something like afterlife here that's happening with the don't drink the water. So I I liked the point where you had that old guy get into the car, like the creepy old guy that he picked up after he didn't drink the water. And then he gives them the coin. That's like the plot twist reveal moment. He tosses the coin and says, thanks for the ride. And I I just thought that was so well done. And at that point, you knew, okay, he is ferrying people to the afterlife. Now, there was a plot twist that did not work, and that was the relationship of Harris and Penny. Before we find out that well, who they are and that they did have a relationship, Harris mentions that his ex was someone he met in the cab that he was driving or someplace. That one, I was immediately like, oh, well, clearly Penny was his ex, and that didn't work. Okay with that because I I got that, but I I still was thinking they were going with like a time travel or something with time loops versus an, the afterlife. There, that was an interesting like scene where they showed their relationship that lasted basically a season, right? Where she was in the above the in the real world versus in the afterlife. What was strange to me about how they did that is it felt like they only had dated for a month before she had to leave versus six months. It was just, it was rushed how they did the montage. So it seemed like less, it seemed more condensed than what it was. So that didn't necessarily clue me in that it was six months. On your first viewing, for at least part of the film, you were thinking aliens. Did you feel at all disappointed with where the movie went with that twist? No, I I liked it. I liked that it did something different and played on tropes from other films. Uh, And it became this story of star-crossed lovers. I liked it. What about you? Because I didn't expect it to wind up being Aliens or a time loop movie in the sense of like a broken space-time continuum, the twist itself was fine but it was along the lines of something i expected so for me it wasn't really a twist it was adding detail and texture to a plot that i was expecting can you give me an an example of a movie that you think did a really good plot twist because for people like us that watch a lot of movies and you've watched collectively over time more movies than me 
sometimes I think it's hard to surprise the viewer anymore when you ingest so much content. So I love to know a film that you think was like a fantastic gotcha plot twist. The last film that had an important plot twist, something that is key to understanding the story that impressed me and that I had at least some surprise while watching was probably the usual suspects. So a 25 year old movie. Yeah, that's an old one. So you're not surprised that often. If you've watched enough films, read enough books, just consumed enough stories, at some point, even those stories that are well-crafted like this one is, you start to see the patterns and the twists become easier to predict. I want to be clear, with this movie, it's not like in the first five minutes I could have literally written out the entire rest of the film. As I said, for probably the first act, I really did think this was going along the lines of a Jacob's Ladder. Not being surprised by a plot twist doesn't impact a film for me, though, or my enjoyment of it. I'm one of those people who doesn't mind spoilers. I'm looking for character, dialogue, story, and cinematography, and then how all that is put together. So in this case, even having an idea that the more obvious plot line, the one that I think they want the viewer to assume is what's going on, isn't the case, it's still a good story. So even having guessed at least part of the plot twist in no way impacted my like or dislike of this movie. I think that the plot twist, being a little surprised by the plot twist, upped my enjoyment of this movie, which is why I, I rated it slightly higher than you. Probably be, And I don't ingest as much movies as you have just collectively over time. You referenced two movies here that I haven't seen either of those movies, right? So I think that for me, it, it did up my enjoyment a bit to be like, oh, that's, a, that's cool. And now I get to watch it again and like look for all the clues along the way. So what would you say, Jeff, if you had to pick out like a theme as a writer or something that, you know, you thought that you liked about this film or didn't like about this film, what, would, what did you pick out? With this film, the main enjoyment is the relationship of Harris and Penny as it is depicted by these two actors and the dialogue they have. These two characters are engaging, and I really enjoyed watching the two of them act. It's not so much an overall theme. It is the smart way the writer constructed these characters and then how the two actors brought those characters to life. It is fun to watch them. They have a very believable attraction to each other. The dialogue is almost flawless. That for me was the best part about this movie. And that gets to my second point about the importance of strong writing in low budget films, because low budget films don't have all the bells and whistles. They don't have your A-list actors, your fancy special effects, your you know big budget action scenes or like big sprawling set design 
They're filmed in one or two locations with just a couple actors, and it really relies on strong writing and story to carry the film. And I liked that they were able to do that, that with such a low budget, they were able to do a lot with this film because of the strong writing. They filmed it. I looked up a little information about the film because I was interested. Uh, They filmed it in mainly one location. It was a cab on a desert road. That was their primary location. They had a a secondary location where they did exteriors in California, like in Pasadena and Palmdale, just for the flashback scene, but not much was done there. They had some interior shots of the cab also in a soundstage. That was basically three locations, right? The California location, this dusty desert road location, and the soundstage. They filmed the entire thing also in six days, which I found to be impressive. And uh, interesting side note is the old Checker Marathon taxi cab that they used in the film, it wasn't in very good shape. And so... Uh, for the final exterior shots, like in their last day of shooting, one of the crew managed to like get the car started after like, 15, 20 minutes of it not starting. And they didn't turn it off the entire day because they were so afraid it wouldn't start again. And it miraculously made it through the last day of filming on a single tank of gas. Um, so I thought that was cool. And the other, they even used the film crew to act. Like they, there's a scene towards the end where once... Harris realizes he is Sharon and he is ferrying people to the afterlife that he is like, it's like these cameos of all these quirky people he's taking to the afterlife. And most of those people weren't actors. They were film crew members. And the director actually did a cameo as the passenger that was whistling. So I thought that was, That was interesting. And then one more little thing was Jason Stewart, who played the voice of the dispatcher, a.k.a. Hades, he did all of his voice work mostly in post-production. He came into his studio and did three hours worth of voice work, so these actors had to act without him doing his part during the six days of filming. To me, that shows strong acting on their part. Uh, So... Because there was well-written characters with good backstories, witty dialogue, you cared about them, because there was a mystery that we were interested in solving, figuring out why they were stuck in this time loop, all of that came together to make this low-budget film a success. You mentioned what happens after Harris becomes aware of the extent of what's happening, that he is ferrying the dead to the afterworld. And as she said, it's set up like a sequence of different people getting in his cab and his interactions. Did those work for you? That yeah, I mean, I thought that was kind of there were there was a there were fun scenes where we get to see because it, it's basically done to show you that a year goes by before he gets to see Penny again because of the rules of how the afterlife works, right? And so, and because he can only ferry, he only gets to ferry her out, I believe, not back. And I think that's it, right? He gets to ferry her out of the afterlife, but not back. It's only one way. So that's why he only gets to see her once every year. And so I thought it was done. It was a nice way to show that time was passing and that he had 
sort of embraced his lot in life of being Sharon and having to do this because Hades was pissed that he and Persephone fell in love. So this was this like eternal punishment. And I thought the scenes were kind of fun showing these like quirky people, like what some people die naked, you know, but I enjoyed it. What about you? It's briefly about Penny. See, I was in the impression that he was taking her home and it's mainly because of a line of dialogue near the end where they're driving towards a storm. And I believe Harris says something like, what's that? And she's like, that's my husband being angry. And there's going to be a fight when I get back. So my impression was he was taking her home, but that's a little plot point. As far as the scenes, I thought the tone was wrong. We've had a fairly intense I'm not going to say frightening first two acts, because that's not true, but you've had these characters who are trying to unpack what they know about each other, figure out the world around them. And then, of course, as a viewer, we are learning that Penny actually knows exactly what's going on, and she is just withholding that information from Harris. Having those quirky, jokey scenes... I actually think detracted a bit from the power of the film, which is really about this relationship, these two characters, and what they're gonna going through just so that they can have, what is it, 20 minutes of time with each other a year. I'm not sure how I would have filled that time out. So I'm not saying I have a great other idea, because otherwise your movie is about 60 minutes long. But I did find tonally that was off. It's not a jokey film. It does have witty and some fairly funny moments. But it is a fairly serious movie. And that block of interactions didn't really work for me. So yeah, maybe you could have filled it out with more serious characters. So you're still having seen that year go by of him ferrying people, but maybe it's more him having conversations with people about their regrets in life or or just a more serious tone of what people think when they die and reflect on about their life. You could have gone that way instead of make it more jokey with the guy with the bong and the naked guy and the couple arguing and this and that. Maybe that would have been better tonally. I think I would have gone the route of all of his other passengers are like the old man. They're just quiet. They don't interact with him. They He, he takes them where they're supposed to go, which is the entrance to the afterworld, and that's it. To make it more, more torturous that he has no other interaction except with Penny. So it's more of a sacrifice that he is making by not drinking the water and forgetting the whole year. I think that's that's where I would have gone with this. The whole idea behind Penny giving him the water is she knows how painful it is for him to be eternally punished to do this because of his love for her and and then he died tragically and Hades got him. Uh, that he dro- he died in an accident actually with his cab. Um so that like she wanted to be kind to him by having him forget, but by forgetting, then he doesn't get to realize how much he loves her. So it's one of those, it is tragic. Like he's going to have to suffer that year if he doesn't drink the water, but then he gets to actually remember his love for Penny and have 
uh, more authentic 20 minutes. I actually have a question for you regarding Harris's death. Do you think it was, as you said, an accident or did he kill himself? I didn't get the impression he killed himself. I got the impression that he was upset because basically Penny leaves with no explanation. Their relationship ends and we don't really know why she, I mean, we know later, right, that she has to go back to the underworld, but that is not explained. So he's upset and he goes back to try to save the relationship because he just thinks they had a fight and she's, not only is she not there, but her house is completely like packed up, furniture is covered, all of that. And so he's devastated and he gets in his car and he's not, I think he's emotional and not driving safely because he's devastated about the relationship. But I didn't get the impression that he purposely committed suicide because of it, just that he was upset while driving and not paying attention. And that's why the crash happened. I mean, it's, it's, it's up for interpretation because it's not clear, but that's how I took it. I went the suicide route and I agree with you. It is not clear. The reason I read that into his death had in part to do with the setup that he's super upset and all that, but also the fact that Hades is able to use him to ferry the dead. The idea being that as a suicide, he is going to the bad place. But I don't think it really changes the story too much. It's just maybe I'm looking for a bleaker or grimmer story than we get. Yeah, because the ending is, even though he is sort of like... (laughs) sentenced to eternal damnation it's a sweet ending like in the end there's this nice moment between the two of them where you know harris starts accepting his fate he says i'm starting to see the nobility and getting people to their destination then there's this you know moment of just true love between them i don't want to drink the water and forget you and then they it it ends with i'll always be there waiting for you and I'll always be there to drive you. It's just a sweet ending. And then you see the stars crossing in the sky. And so it is totally like, it, it's not a tragic, bleak, dark ending. It's, it's, a, it's a nice ending where two people have found each other and they love each other. And there's a bit of tragedy in that because of his eternal damnation sentence. But they figure out how to make it work. Sounds like you wanted something much darker. What I'll say about the ending is this, and really the ending of those two characters. While it may not have been as serious or dark as I would have preferred, it was emotionally satisfying. I do think that the interaction between those two characters, the way the actors pull it off, you do feel for them. And at the end, yeah, I was, you know, happy that. Harris is making that sacrifice so he doesn't forget his feelings for Penny. Yeah, I think what threw you off is that year going by with all those passengers. I think that set the wrong tone, so it made the ending harder as a result of the tonal, just it rose a little too peppy for you. Yes, it did. Yeah, versus me, 
I was okay with the tonal rise because I thought it helped crescendo us to a happier ending. I think that's one of the reasons the writers did it is they were bringing you out of the darkness a bit. I did want to bring up one other thing about the writing, you know, while we're talking about that is I really liked the ditch, the dispatcher, like the writing of Hades, I thought was clever. And then he, it was very much like, I'm the victim. You all ran around on me and they're the ones in the wrong. I thought that was really well done. And then you work for me. I'm the dispatcher. You're my my driver. You're my ferryman. I just, I, I just found the writing so clever. What did you think of the dispatcher? Oh, I agree. The writing for all the characters was really good. Yeah, but for the dispatcher, it was fine. I liked his voice. For someone that you never actually see on screen, he does have a nice vocal presence. But it really goes back to what we've been saying, is that the writing for this movie is great. The dialogue is great for what this movie is saying and how the characters are interacting. Yeah, and it's so cool. The writer gets to star in her own movie. Like, how neat is that? Let's move on to our wrap-up. What was your favorite scene? So I'm going to go with the plot twist moment. The scene where he drops off the creepy old man at Elman River, where he asked to go, in the middle of nowhere, and the old man tosses him a coin for the ride. And it, it's just that great reveal moment that we we could tell it was leading up to that, but I thought it was well done. And that actor that played the old man was creepy enough that it worked tonally in the scene. What about you, Jeff? I actually enjoyed the first ride that Penny takes with Harris, or at least the first ride in the film, where we get a good sense of who these characters are and how they interact. It's fun. The fact that it's in black and white is a little disorienting. And of course, it ends with her disappearing. But that was a nice, both disorienting, creepy, but also playful scene. I really enjoyed it. It set a nice tone for the movie. So what was your least like scene? So I'm going to go with all the black and white scenes that occurred in the first 20 minutes of this film. So in the hook, they the director chose to use black and white most of the beginning of the film. And then color comes into play as Harris starts remembering Penny. I get why the director was trying to do it because he was trying to cue the viewer that, oh, Harris is remembering now, so let's put color into play. But I don't think we needed to do that. The viewer would have been cued by the strong acting and dialogue and everything else going on. You didn't need to do the black and white to color. I'm not a big fan of these camera tricks in general. I think that there's very limited use cases for black and white or saturation or slow motion like all these things every now and again they work in film but I think they're often overdone to do like artsy things that are not necessary and are more distracting so I didn't like the use of black and white that's my biggest criticism about the film is choosing to do the first 20 minutes in mostly black and white what about you Jeff well my least like scene was the fairing montage that we talked about with those characters just totally out of place 
the black and white scenes were interesting. They actually remind me a bit of the opening and closing of The Wizard of Oz, which has, you know, these like sepia tone bookends to the Technicolor adventure. And interestingly enough, that is another near death movie that people generally don't identify as such. But it worked in that it lets the viewer know that you are moving into a fantasy world. I do agree with you that you don't really need it to let the viewer know what's happening. The dialogue and acting is good enough. It was an interesting stylistic choice that, while I don't dislike it as much as you, I I agree it was unnecessary. What would you say is a film that uses a technique like this? Whether a change in color, a change in speed, how the sound is presented, whatever it is. Something that lets you know that you're moving from one narrative state to another that you think work. So I would say, you know, if we're looking at the black and white and color, Schindler's List, I thought worked. You know, it, it was mostly filmed in black and white, but it had the red coat. And that, to me, was a really powerful use of color. So for you, this technique is more to create a specific sensation, a emotion in the viewer and should be used less as a narrative device as it is in this movie. Right. Like it needs to, if you're going to use it, it needs to draw you further into the film and what the writer and director are trying to say versus distract you from the story. So Steph. From zero to five pandas, how would you rate this movie? I really liked this movie. I gave it a four and a half. I thought this was a solid, low-budget film. Love the plot twist. Really witty screenwriting. Good on-screen character chemistry and acting. So, yeah, I mean, I, I found this to be a really great film. Did a lot with a little budget. Black and white camera work was unnecessary, so it lost a half a point for that. But otherwise, I'd highly recommend this one to our listeners. What about you, Jeff? So I went with 3.5 cab driving pandas. I would echo all the positives that you just listed. I had a little more problem with the ending, especially that montage and just the tone of the ending. But overall, a very good fantasy. So I'd highly recommend people seek it out. Have a great day and happy viewing. Thank you for joining us for Stream On. Tune in next week when we'll be reviewing Taxi Driver, currently on Netflix. Stream On is a production of Steph and Jeff Wright's Media. Reproduction of this podcast without written consent is prohibited. All rights reserved, 2020.